Tonight I would like to talk about the nature of mind. What is the nature of consciousness? And how does it create the various worlds that we live in? How does it create the world of our physical experience? Physical sensations? the world of our emotional experience and intellectual experience? How does it provide the spiritual understanding that we have? What is the nature of consciousness? What is the nature of awareness? <clears throat> consciousness or awareness is that which knows. And it's not knowing or knowledge in the sense of acquired knowledge that we gain about various subjects. It's not knowing in that sense. But rather consciousness is the knowing or the awareness that's spontaneously present in every moment of our experience. Consciousness is the universal, fundamental power of knowing. It knows different objects of the senses. So it's consciousness or awareness which knows sight or sound or smell or taste, or sensation. It knows thoughts, it knows emotions, it knows mind states, both the skillful ones, the unskillful ones. So we could think of consciousness as being simple awareness or the power of cognizance it is the power of the knowing faculty. So just as a very simple experiment in the experience of awareness or consciousness, just very slowly, if you would move your arm and simply be in the experience of knowing the movement. As you move, certain sensations, the sensations of the movement, are appearing, they're arising, and they're being known without any special effort or intention. The sensations are arising and being known. If there were a corpse here, and somehow <coughs> we moved its arm, the same movement would be there, but presumably, something of a speculation, but <clears throat> presumably there would be <clears throat> no consciousness there, no knowing. So in the movement, what makes us different than a corpse is that there is this knowing faculty happening, and it's happening completely spontaneously. It's not that we decide, okay, now I'm going to know this. There's the spontaneous presence, the spontaneous arising of awareness. But then, as I've mentioned in previous talks, as we investigate this further, this mystery of awareness, this mystery of consciousness, we might ask ourselves the question, well known by what? What is this awareness that's knowing this very simple experience? You know, of sensations. 
when we look for it, when we look for awareness, for consciousness, there's nothing to find. And this is the great mystery. It's invisible. What does invisible mean? It can't be seen. It's without color, without form, without shape, without substance. It's unformed, it's unborn, it's clear, it's empty like space. And yet somehow, with all of these uns, unborn, unformed, invisible, with all of this, somehow the awareness ceaselessly and endlessly functions. So our practice is really about discovering the nature of this consciousness, the nature of this awareness. Many traditions, all of the traditions, in their different ways, describe the fundamental purity of the nature of awareness, the nature of consciousness. You've probably heard some of these referred to already. In the Pali texts, the Buddha said, the mind, O bhikkhus, O bhikkhus, is radiant and pure. The mind, or consciousness, or knowing, is inherently radiant and pure. It's obscured by visiting kalesas or defilements. So the purity is obscured by the forces of fear or greed or anger or whatever. But its nature is pure, is stainless. In the Song of Mahamudra, in the Tibetan tradition, it says the essence of the mind is like space. Therefore, there is nothing it does not encompass. Clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home. Nor do, the, nor do the, the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind. Once mind is truly seen, discrimination stops. I like that image of the clouds wandering through the sky having no roots, no home. Could you imagine clouds kind of coming down with roots, <laughs> you know, being rooted to the ground? It's not like that. There's no roots, no home. They're just arising appearances floating through the sky. Our thoughts and feelings and all the appearances arising within our own minds are exactly the same. They're not rooted. They have no home. They're simply arising experiences. So what does it mean to say, once the mind is truly seen, discrimination stops? doesn't mean that we stop recognizing each for what it is. But discrimination stops in the sense that a mirror does not discriminate with respect to its reflecting what comes in front of it. The mirror doesn't decide, yes, I'll reflect this and not reflect that. No, because the nature of the mirror, its very nature, its very essence, is to reflect what comes in front of it. In exactly the same way, the nature of the mind is to know what arises without discrimination. It knows everything equally. 
It knows everything in an unobstructed way. There's nothing between awareness and the object. In one interview, I was speaking with somebody about the nature of mind, the nature of awareness, and I was asking how they experienced it. And this one yogi said, he experiences the nature of the characteristic of the mind as being honest. And I thought that was a very good description. It's inherently honest in the way that a mirror is honest. There's no deceiving it, there's no fooling it. It simply knows whatever is there and it knows it vividly, it knows it clearly. So when we look and explore and investigate the nature of mind, we see that it combines two essential aspects. It combines the aspect of a vivid, honest clarity of what's arising with the aspect of emptiness. It's the union of emptiness and clarity emptiness and awareness. I think I mentioned last week this teaching of Buddhadasa, who was a great Thai monk of this century. He was quite um, radical by Thai standards in his understanding and teaching of the Dharma. Um, There's a wonderful book of his teachings. It's called Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. But if you remember from last week when I I mentioned Buddhadasa's teaching that we should really call the mind emptiness, but because of the awareness faculty, we call it mind. It's this union of emptiness and awareness. It's that nature, the union of those two that we need to understand and recognize. It gets a little complicated because the words we use, like mind, consciousness, awareness, mindfulness, emptiness, these words mean different things in different contexts. And so that's why it gets confusing. So in any particular context, we need to be precise about what these words mean. And in that way we can come to really a fuller and complete understanding. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a very interesting and important distinction made between the mind or the consciousness which is lost in an experience or identified with it or fixated on it. The difference between the mind or the knowing faculty when it's lost in an experience, as we experience often, and this is, this is for the most part our normal state, you know, the mind identified with what's happening, and the empty, clear nature of mind itself, which is called awareness. Okay, so do you... These two aspects, there's the mind when it's identified with what's happening and the nature of mind 
which is the empty, clear awareness. <clears throat> I'd like to read something about this. And this is a teaching from one of the really greatest Tibetan masters of this century, uh, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, who really was a leading proponent of the non-sectarian movement in Tibetan Buddhism. He wrote, if you conquer the primordial nature, that is the primordial nature of the mind, the nature of awareness, by distinguishing mind from awareness, the view of the absolute will gradually become clear. Okay, so mind here refers to the mind that's identified with experience, and awareness refers to the nature of mind, that empty, clear nature. So even if inwardly awareness is not yet clear right now, simply keep the mind from wandering outside. This will do, for awareness lies in the very depth of the mind. They are, it is said, like ice and water. Water and ice are not entirely the same, for the latter is solid and can be held. But molten ice is none other than water. So in truth, water and ice are not two things but one. Okay. Ice is like the mind when it's identified with experience, our usual normal state, our normal mind. And lost in, identified with, fixated on, that's like the mind congealed. That's the ice. The nature of mind is awareness, empty, vivid, clear awareness, the uncongealed mind, the mind free from any clinging or grasping. So even though they manifest differently, using this metaphor, you know, the ice is solid and the water is fluid, essentially the water is no different than the ice. So in truth, water and ice are not two things but one. Likewise, mind, the fixated mind, is not awareness being diluted, but mind's nature, when realized, is none other than awareness. They cannot be distinguished by analytic reasoning. One day, as your confidence in awareness grows, mind, the fixated mind, will appear as witless as a child, and awareness as wise as a venerable old sage. Awareness will not run after mind, but eclipse it in a relaxed, serene state, rest at ease. So the nature of mind, awareness, is always present. It's no different, it's not different from the concealed identified state. It's simply we need to relax that state in order to recognize this nature of awareness. To put it another way, and again, all of these teachings are like fingers pointing at the moon. They're pointing at the nature of our own minds. You know, and the words are different. There are many different fingers pointing, but there's only one experience. 
the mind suffering and the mind free. So in the Pali texts, the Buddha talked of freedom of mind when it's not distracted by external things, when it's not running after external objects, and when it's not stuck internally, when we're not caught or stuck in some internal state. This this is what the Buddha said uh, in the Pali texts. He said, bhikkhus, which in its most general meaning means all of us, all of those who are practicing for awakening, said bhikkhus should examine things in such a way that while examining them, their consciousness is not distracted and scattered externally, nor stuck internally, and by not clinging is not agitated. If consciousness is not distracted and scattered externally, nor stuck internally, and if by not clinging is not agitated, then there is no origination of suffering, nor of birth, aging, and death in the future. I like that quotation, the teaching, because it sort of takes the rug out from any kind of cling. Don't run after anything externally. Don't get stuck internally. What's left? The mind released. The mind free from any grasping. When it's not agitated, when it's not clinging to anything, there's no agitation. When not agitated, we come to the end of suffering. So the nature of mind is this unity, the inseparable unity of awareness and emptiness. These are the two aspects together which we need to recognize. We probably have a better sense of what awareness means. Now we can, I think, with not too much difficulty relate to awareness as this knowing function that which knows. But what does it mean to say (coughs) that the nature of the mind is emptiness? Because in English, emptiness has a kind of a strange meaning, you know, kind of vacancy or absence. But emptiness in the Buddhist sense really is something quite different. I just want to explore a little bit the meaning and the experience of emptiness. One meaning is the characteristic nature of all experience to be free of any inherent self-existence. This is what emptiness means. No inherent self-existence. And if you remember from some weeks ago, the example I used uh, of the rainbow, which is such a good example of the empty nature of phenomena. There's no such thing as a rainbow in itself. A rainbow is an appearance arising out of different conditions of light and moisture and air. and The conditions come together and there's an appearance of a rainbow. The conditions change the appearance of rainbow disappears. A rainbow is not some solid thing existing in itself. What the Buddha was saying 
is that everything is like a rainbow. That every single experience arises out of conditions, is an appearance coming from conditions. When the conditions are there, the experience is there. When the conditions change, the experience disappears. There is nothing solid, no inherent self-existence in anything. When we understand emptiness in this way, that it's all arising out of conditions, we see that they don't belong to us in any way that we can command. In that way, they're selfless. And just imagine what it would be like if you sat here and you commanded, let me not have any unpleasant sensations. Let me not have so many thoughts. Let me not have any unpleasant mind states. It doesn't work. (laughs) We could say that and we could wish it and we could command it, but if the conditions are there for those things to arise, they will arise. They're not dependent on our will or on our wish. And in that sense, are empty, empty of substance, empty of self. If we want something to happen, if we have desire for something to happen, we need to understand the conditions, the causes for that thing to arise. We want to be happy in our lives. We need to understand the causes for happiness. Everything is arising out of conditions. We could repeat endlessly, may water boil, may water boil, may water boil, may water boil. We will never get that cup of tea, unless perhaps we have psychic powers like Deepama, (laughs) which is another set of causes. What's necessary, we need some effective means for raising the temperature of the water. And that's what's going to bring it to a boil. Okay, why is this important? You know, it may may or may not be interesting to you. (laughs) But is it relevant (laughs) to our lives? The fact that all phenomena are inherently selfless, have no inherent self-existence, has very far-reaching implications. It's not a simple philosophic proposition. Buddhadasa, he spoke with tremendous insight of the implications of understanding the emptiness of phenomena, and not only that, but how we can actually experience it. So it's not just an idea that we could talk back and forth about, but really pointed the way to the direct experience. What is it like to know for ourselves, to experience the empty nature of mind? Because that's where the transforming wisdom comes from.
the experience of emptiness in the Buddhist sense of the word, the experience of it, is the experience of the mind that is free from the sense of self. And when it's free from the sense of self, it's free from suffering. The Buddha repeatedly said he teaches just one thing, the suffering and the end of suffering. And then he went on to say, what is the suffering? What is the suffering that he's talking about? He says, the five clung to aggregates. The five aggregates clung to as I or mine is suffering. Because in the moment, in any moment of clinging to any of the aggregates, which gets translated into just the different aspects of our experience. When we cling to sensations in one way or another, when we cling to the body, when we cling to thoughts or to emotions or to feelings or to moods, or we cling to awareness, when we cling to anything as I or mine, in that moment of clinging, we have given birth to the self and we have given birth to suffering. The sense of self is born. And this is something that would be interesting for you to investigate in your practice. The sense of self is born in any moment that we identify with the arising experience. Notice that contraction of self that takes place. I know you're familiar with the Quite famous Buddhist painting of the Wheel of Life, you know, and it shows uh, this Wheel of Life divided into separate compartments, showing the various realms of how we take rebirth, where we take rebirth. Of course, in the traditional Buddhist understanding, it refers to the different possibilities for rebirth from life to life, you know, in the lower realms, in the human realms, in the higher realms. And that might well be true, and lots of great teachers have talked about that from their own experience. But there's another way, in addition to that, that we can understand it. And that is seeing how we take rebirth in these realms countless times in a day as we give birth to the self, we give birth to the I. When we are caught or identified in hatred, We are taking rebirth in a hell realm, you know. And I don't know. Maybe you haven't experienced intense hatred lately, but you can probably imagine it anyway. You know, of what it would be like—a horrible state of suffering. When we're caught, you know, identified, lost in strong, obsessive kinds of desire, unfulfilled desire. It's like taking birth in that moment in what are called the hungry ghost realms. You know, the, the, the usual iconography for the hungry ghost, or well, one of them anyway, is this huge being with a vast stomach and a pinhole mouth. So no matter how much is taken in, never satisfied. I think we visit those realms from time to time. <laughs> 
you know, trying to take in, take in, take in, and never feeling satisfied, just that force of wanting, endless addictive wanting. That's the birth of the self, the birth of the I in the hungry ghost realm. Or when we're lost in stupidity and dullness, that's the animal realm. In the human realm, where there's some degree of light in the mind and awareness and morality and generosity. You know, and as those are strengthened even more, it's the deva realms, you know, where there is, there is more kindness and more uh, sila, stronger sila. And the brahma realms, you know, when we're really immersed in metta and compassion and the brahma viharas. So through the day, we're just cycling around and around through all these realms. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, but the real freedom is in the experience of emptiness of self in all of them, where all of these different thoughts and experiences and moods and emotions may come, and we're not identified with any of them. We see them all as clouds wandering through the sky with no roots, no home. We're not rooting any experience in the sense of self. So what Buddhadasa called this state, this experience of the mind free of I, free of clinging, he called it truth discerning awareness. Because when we are settled back in this state of awareness, the nature of mind, the knowing nature of mind, it sees everything exactly for what it is. It's not deceived. We're not living in the illusion of things. We're not lost in the movies of our minds. Some weeks ago I read the little dialogue between uh, the yogi, the Tibetan yogi Shabkar, you know, and a little mountain flower discoursing on impermanence. Shabkar was one of the great, uh, very great yogis of the, he straddled the 18th and 19th centuries. And a lot of his teachings uh, illuminated the nature of awareness, the nature of mind. This is one of his teachings. He said, now come up close and listen. Before that, he started with Imaho. Remember? How amazing. Now come up close and listen. When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. Remember, we're talking about the nature of awareness, the empty nature. You won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything. I want to stop for a moment, interject something here. In listening to teachings like this, it's very helpful not to be listening and thinking about it, but actually to be listening and looking into the nature of your own mind. Because it's a very direct pointing. 
And so it's a meditative listening. These are, in some sense, instructions to us. And when listened in that way, traditionally, many people get enlightened. (laughs) So maybe I'll start from the beginning again. (laughs) So really listen, again, looking into the nature of your own mind to, to see this. When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. To start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything. It's primordially empty. There's nothing there to hold on to. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape or color and in the end, nowhere to go. There's no trace of its having been by. Not being fixed as something, it's beyond presence and absence. It neither comes nor goes, gets born nor dies. It neither illuminates nor obscures. Mind's nature is vivid, as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive, stripped bare of samsaric error, mind itself is surely and always Buddha. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So we can experience this directly for ourselves when we look, when we look into the nature of our own minds. Sometimes in your practice, as you're observing the different phenomena, the breath or sensations or sounds or thoughts, emotions, whatever they are, Sometimes turn the attention back to the knowing itself. In the moment of hearing or feeling something. In that very moment, turn the mind back to the nature of knowing. And in that very first moment, before thought, before concept, before reaction, just in that very first moment of knowing, we get a glimpse of this intrinsically pure, empty nature. As we begin to recognize this empty, responsive nature of awareness, as we look into our own minds, into our own experience, And even for moments, get a glimpse of this recognition, something quite extraordinary happens. Because when we free ourselves from the prison of self, from the contraction of self, from all the fetters and attachments that we have to experience, In the moment of turning the mind back to the knowing, in that moment, we cut the attachments. 
It's like cutting the ligaments and tendons that keep us bound to experience. In that moment, we begin to see that the expression of awareness, the expression of this empty awareness is love and compassion. So a question could arise, might arise, what's the, what is the connection between emptiness, the experience of emptiness and the experience of love? Now how are these two unified? How is the one the expression of the other? <clears throat> As we look at our experience in a deep, deeply incisive way, we begin to see that love and compassion, that these feelings are the expression of non-separation. When we're feeling non-separate from others, the expression of that non-separation, the natural expression, is love and compassion. But as long as there is a strong sense of self, as long as there's a strong sense of I and mine, the very notion of self implies other. If there's self, there's other than self. And who is other than self? Everyone else in the universe, but me. You know? And so as long as we're living our lives dwelling in this illusion, dwelling in this prison of self-reference, of I, of necessity, we are living in a state, a space of separation, and to a large degree, alienation. That's an inevitable consequence of self, because if there's self, then there's other. And it's quite amazing to see how much of the, our desire and wanting in the world is an effort to overcome this sense of separation. But it's going about it in completely the wrong way because it's not getting at the root of the separation. From the perspective of absence of self, emptiness of self, there is no one there to be separate. And so the whole problem disappears. In this emptiness of self, and I'm sure you've had this experience many times during the retreat, whether you've recognized it or not, I'm not sure. But I'm quite sure you've been in the experience many, many times. In the absence of self, when we don't create this sense of self through identifying with what's arising, there is an amazing <clears throat> intimacy non-dual, unobstructed connection with what is happening, with a breath, with a sound. I want to read something from Sasaki Roshi. He's the Zen master who uh, 
I sang for. <laughs> so this is what he wrote. He wrote, and again, this is a reflection of this non-dual selfless space as a butterfly lost in flowers. This is Sasaki Roshi speaking as of himself, as a butterfly lost in flowers, as a child fondling mother's breast, as a bird settled on the tree. Sixty-seven years of this world I have played with God. It's a wonderful expression of this kind of intimacy of each moment's experience when there's no separation. There's the sounds and sights and smells and tastes and touch and everything that's happening from the place of emptiness of self, there's this amazing intimacy with each of these moments of experience. No self means non-separation. Non-separation means love. Non-separation is expressed through compassion. So right here is a very critical point, which is the understanding that love and compassion are not stances that the self takes. They're not a stance of the self. Now I will be loving. Now I will be compassionate. Love and compassion from the place of emptiness of self, really is the very simple and authentic responsiveness to circumstances. It's not that anyone is being loving or anyone is being compassionate. In the experience of non-separation, which is just another way of saying emptiness of self, there's this easy responsiveness to situations from a loving, caring place. Because we're not separate. We're not feeling that separateness. Now Ram Dass' guru in India, Neem Karoli Baba, he he didn't give a lot of long verbal teachings, but a few of his his lines really just, just hit home. He said, do what you do, but don't throw anyone out of your heart. And for me, that just cuts right to the bottom line reference point for our lives. Do what you do, but don't throw anyone out of your heart. Because this can reflect back to us precisely those times when we do feel separate. You know, when we have thrown people out of our hearts through some kind of ill will or anger or reaction. It was expressed in another way by the Dalai Lama. He said, of course there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. So the point here is not that we create some ideal picture of ourselves you know, as a spiritual being of how we should be and then live in a pretense that we don't have negative emotions. Oh, I meditate, so 
you know, I shouldn't and don't feel this, this, and this. That's really a pretense, as I hope you've seen. (laughs) Rather, we can hold the whole range of feelings, even the negative ones, in the larger context, that even in the presence of negative feelings, that in the depth of our hearts, we do not wish anyone ill. And come back to that place again and again. Well, it's not always an easy task, because we can get caught up and get identified with the negative, afflictive emotions. So from one side, as we've been doing, we practice the Brahma-viharas. We practice the expression and feeling of love, of compassion, of joy and the happiness of others. And we gradually extend that to include not only ourselves and the people close to us, but all beings, including the difficult people in our lives. Basically, it's a practice of inclusion, of letting everyone in. And in some way, it's not very different than our practice of Vipassana, where we learn to let everything in. Now we learn to let in the pain in the knee and the discomfort in the body and the difficult mind states. We let it all in and see the emptiness of it. In the same way with the Brahma Viharas, we let everyone in, the people we like and the people we don't like. We take them in, we take in the suffering. We let it in and express our wish of love, of care, of kindness. So that's the practice of the Brahma-viharas. From the other side, through the wisdom of emptiness, we see that there's no one there to keep anyone out. Now when we're in the experience of emptiness, the experience of selflessness, there's no one here that needs to set up a defensive perimeter you know, with machine gun emplacements because there's no one there to protect. And so there's an amazing coming together. Now we see that genuine goodwill is the expression of selflessness. See that these two are are not different things. This is also from Kensi Rinpoche about the union of emptiness and compassion. When you realize the true voidness or emptiness or selflessness of phenomena, you will spontaneously feel an all-embracing, non-conceptual compassion for all beings who are immersed in samsara's ocean of suffering because they cling to the notion of an ego. This troublesome ego, which is so concerned about itself, has in reality never begun to exist. It does not exist anywhere now, and so it cannot cease to exist. Not the slightest trace of it can be found. When you recognize the empty nature, therefore, any notion of there being an ego to dissolve vanishes, and at the same time, 
the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So our struggle is not to get rid of the ego. It has never been there in the first place. What we need to do and what we are doing in our practice is to learn, to see, to recognize, to experience the fundamental empty nature of everything that's arising. This is its nature. This is the characteristic of everything we're experiencing. Another way of expressing the union of compassion and emptiness is in the teachings of relative and absolute bodhicitta. Relative bodhicitta means compassion, compassion for beings. And it's called relative bodhicitta because it's working or operating in the field of beings and individuals. And practicing that compassionate response. Now we consciously cultivate good intentions and compassionate actions, taking care of beings in all the ways that we can. It might be material assistance, it might be loving energy, it might be Dharma teachings. There's this move of compassion to help alleviate the suffering of beings. I want to read something about this relative bodhicitta. Uh, This is from Lama Yeshe. In a way, this relative bodhicitta is like a huge selfish attitude. Because when you dedicate yourself to others with loving kindness, you get a lot more pleasure than you would otherwise. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama said recently, if you're going to be selfish, do it on a grand scale. (laughs) Wide selfishness is better than the narrow, is better than narrow. What did he mean? Just this, that huge selfishness is the understanding that when we help other beings, we are creating the conditions for our own happiness. I like the... the continual puncturing of kind of self-righteous attitudes, (laughs) even in the practice of bodhicitta, that it's just taking in the understanding that this relative bodhicitta, the compassionate care and kindness for others, benefits all. Benefits ourselves, it benefits others. teaching of absolute bodhicitta takes us out of the realm of beings altogether. A relative bodhicitta is compassion, compassion for the suffering of beings. Absolute bodhicitta is the realization of emptiness. In that realization, there's no self, there's no other, there's no being, there's no individuals. It's the very direct experience of this empty, lucid, clear nature of mind, nature of awareness. It's free from any notion of self at all. 
And in different traditions, this absolute bodhicitta has been called many different things. Unborn Buddha mind. And again, we're talking about the nature of our own minds now. We're not talking about something outside of ourselves. The nature of awareness, absolute bodhicitta, unborn Buddha mind, Buddha essence, the dharmakaya, the unconditioned, the pure heart. It's all talking about this absolute nature. Tulku Ergen, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters, who died recently, he said, relative bodhicitta is compassion, absolute bodhicitta is emptiness. When these two are present, enlightenment is unavoidable. (laughs) So this is our practice. The practice of relative bodhicitta, developing the compassion, practice of absolute bodhicitta, the recognition of the empty nature, when these two are present, enlightenment is unavoidable. I'd like to close with one teaching of Milarepa, who was you know, one of the great Tibetan yogis, 11th century. And he, you know, as you probably know, lived in a cave. Did anybody tell the story of his last transmission to his chief disciple? Before I read his teaching, it's a wonderful story. I mean, he had gone off. He lived in a cave for, you know, endless number of years doing all these practices and became eminently accomplished. Uh, and in his teachings, he would, uh, he would often sing the teachings, you know, to, in various songs, teaching songs, to just the village people, you know, in the mountains of Tibet. And they're collected in a book called The Hundred Thousand Songs of Milarepa. And so he spent his life and you know, had many, many great disciples. So just before he died, he wanted to pass on the most secret teachings to his chief disciple. So he went with them off to some remote place, you know, high up in the mountains in the Malyas, and do all sorts of preparation, you know, for this very secret teaching. And the guy's fasting for days and preparing himself and purifying himself. And finally, when Milarepa thought that his chief disciple was ready to hear the essential teaching, he bent over, lifted up his robe, and showed the calluses on his butt. (laughs) That's what it takes. Okay, so what do you do (laughs) as you're sitting developing those calluses? He gave some instruction. This is called the Buddha within. Behold and search your unborn mind. Seek not for satisfaction in samsara. I attained all my knowledge through observing the mind within. Thus all my thoughts become the teachings of Dharma, and apparent phenomena are all the books one needs. Those who realize the nature of this mind know that the mind itself is wisdom awareness, 
and no longer make the mistake of searching for Buddha from other sources. In fact, Buddha cannot be found by searching. So contemplate your own mind. This is the highest teaching one can practice.